0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The four-part documentary series, The Kings, premieres Sunday on Showtime, chronicling Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Thomas the Hitman Hearns, and Hands of Stone, Roberto Duran. I spoke about this golden age of 80s boxing with Hall of Fame trainer and commentator, Teddy Atlas. You've trained so many champs from Michael Moore to Mike Tyson, Timothy Bradley, man. It's an honor to talk with you, sir.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: When you get that call, you know, hey, we're making a documentary on Duran, Hagler, Hearns, Leonard. I mean, do you just jump at that chance? I mean, do you remember that as like one of the coolest eras of ever in boxing?
1: Yeah, you don't jump at everything, obviously, that's put forward to you. Um, you you try to use your judgment and be selective for what you want to be associated with. But this was easy. Uh, they That was during my time. I mean, it was during the best time in boxing probably since the 30s and 40s. 30s and 40s was the golden era of boxing when you had fighters like Archie Moore and uh, Henry Armstrong. And then, of course, Joe Lewis. Some of those fighters had 300 fights. Mm. And it it was a bigger sport than baseball. So it was the biggest sport in the country. I mean, Babe Ruth, go back in the 20s. Jack Dempsey was just as big, uh, if not big, as the heavyweight champion of the world. So boxing was the sport. And the 80s is the only time that it's comparative to that, where you had, and there's a reason for it, because first of all, you had great fighters, talented fighters, but you had them fighting on free TV, on network TV, where you became familiar with them, where you identified with them. And the most important thing, you had them fighting each other. Just like back in the 30s and the 40s, the great fighters all fought each other, sometimes three, four, five, six times. So that is what made it such a great era. Uh, And it's never been close to that since. And that's why people are going to want to see this. And people are, are waiting to see the Four Kings because it will bring them back to that time when the best fought the best. And really, that's the formula to make any sport Really popular. As you want to, you know, if, if you if you're a college basketball uh, fan, you you don't want to see Duke play only Prairie View and the smaller teams. No knock on Prairie View or any of those smaller teams, but you want to see him play North Carolina. You want to see him play Kansas. You want to see him play Duke, and. It's the same thing. You want to see the best versus the best. That is represented by the four kings. That is represented by the 80s.
0: Yeah. And the best of the best, not only was there these four guys, but they would all seem to beat each other. Like they all had bragging rights over different things. Like, you know, like someone one of them would beat the other one, but they lost to the third guy. And then that third guy beat the fourth guy. You know what I mean? Like they all each had a claim for bragging rights. It it was absolutely
1: wild. (laughs) And it was bragging rights. And that's the right that's the right term to use because it was more than just the money. It, it was bragging rights. It was pride. It was about being the best. And um, I mean, a guy like Marvin Hagler, that you could make an argument that when he fought Sugar Ray Leonard, he tried too hard. Now, what do I mean by that? It, it meant almost too much for him. He may have overtrained for that. I, I always wondered about that. But he came out orthodox. Here's Marvin Hagler, one of the greatest middleweights of all time, one of the greatest southpaws. Of all time, and he comes out orthodox. Why? Why did he do that? Because he felt that for all those years, he didn't really get to do that he deserved. Someone like Sugar Ray Leonard, who's a great fighter, but he was the gold boy, he was the Olympic gold medalist. And, you know, he got the money early on, he got the big fights. Hagler had to go to places like Philadelphia and fight all these tough middleweights that nobody wanted to fight, and he lost himself. And then he went back and he beat them. Why? because he wanted to become Marvin Hagler, because that's where he was going to test him. That was where the fire was. And he was going to go into the fire and get forged into what he needed to get forged into. And he always felt that he wasn't properly respected or given, as I said, his dues, uh, the way that Lennon and some of the other fighters were. So all the way to the end of his career, his last fight, he finally gets that huge fight and he fights Sugar Ray Lennon And why does he he go away from what got him there, from being a Southpaw? The first rounds, he comes out orthodox, almost like he was tying his hands behind his back saying to the world, look, you wouldn't give me him before. You wouldn't respect me enough. You didn't appreciate me enough. You didn't give me my dues enough. I'm going to go and beat your golden boy, orthodox, instead of Southpaw. So there was a lot going on. In those times with these fighters. And also you had a guy like Roberto Duran. Same scenario. Comes from the streets of Panama. I mean, p- pure poverty. Fighting for money as a kid on the streets. And he he's a, maybe one of the greatest lightweights of all time. And then he gets the golden boy. Again, the golden boy. Sugar Ray Leonard. He gets him. He moves up from lightweight to welterweight. And he fights Sugar Ray Leonard and he beats him, and he's on top of the world. And it's like, now he got everything that he had craved for. Maybe too much, maybe too much, because Marvin Hagler used to have a great saying, it's damn hard to get up at five in the morning and do road work when you're sleeping in silk sheets. And now now all of a sudden, Duran, I don't know what kind of sheets he's sleeping in, but the point is made that now he's there, he's making 12 million dollars for that second fight, 12 or 8 million, I forget exactly what it was. But those times it's still big money, but in those times it was huge money. And he does the no mas. And again, he was affected like this kid, this hungry kid from the streets of Panama, he beats the golden boy. It's like that's what he needed to do. And then all of a sudden he loses something. He loses some of that hunger. And then what makes the the show even greater is that he goes through years of exile and he comes back and he uses that great force, one of the greatest forces in the world, the force of redemption. And he comes back and he redeems himself and becomes champion again. It's a hell of a story.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and thank you for, for going into such depth about Hagler and, and Duran I mean when you finally get to see this edited together I mean I think I think Hagler might come out looking the best of all of them in terms of just the straight ahead working his butt off never getting his due almost like the world is against him and he finally gets the due and then he comes out and he overthinks it he goes uh, orthodox instead of saying southpaw he switches like I guess after the first few rounds but by then I guess it's too late and the judges give it to Leonard So I think Hagler comes out looking pretty good. And then (sighs) to your point, Duran, man, what, what a ride, what a, what a journey to hear his voice on this documentary and laughing as he recounts some stories. He is a wild figure and (laughs) he's sort of like the show stealer, but let's speak to the other two. What was so special about Tommy Hearns? I mean, uh, the hitman. uh, the doc sort of sets him up as a boxer, sort of the sweet science kind of guy, but then, um, his trainer, Emmanuel Stewart really taught him that, that hard right hand man. And he became a power puncher
1: with the best of them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, punches are not necessarily taught you teach them a delivery system that's what you do but punches real punches are born they're not made and he was born with that power and quite to the contrary of what a lot of people might think that aren't in the business it's not always the physically you know big big muscled guys that are the big punches it's the wiry guys the skinny guys, they get leverage in their punches. They're some of the greatest punches of all time. And Tommy Hearns was that guy. He got leverage in his punch. So he he was, the power was there. It was a matter of Stewart doing a great job of teaching him a delivery system, uh, which all started when he knocked out Pepino Cuevas, Qua- the, the left hook artist from Mexico. He knocked him out very early. I think it was the first or second round to win his first title. And he was there. I mean, he was a gunslinger. I mean, that's that's the mentality. You know, he had the ability to box on the outside because he was so tall. I mean, he was six foot three for a welterweight. I mean, that's incredible. And so he could have boxed on the outside, used his reach. You know, kept guys at bay. But his mentality, and a lot of it did come from Stewart. Stewart was teaching a very aggressive style uh, in the Kronk gyms back then. So the Motor City. Uh, Hitman was born, the gunslinger, and he he went after you. <laughs> he gave up his height sometimes. You know, I would always say on ESPN, you know, tall guys got to learn how to fight tall and use that advantage. Well, he knew how to fight tall, but he didn't always want to he, because he had that mentality. And that's, that's one of the reasons we're talking about him today, because he had that mentality.
0: Oh, yeah. Do you remember where you were that first Hagler-Hearns fight? I mean, that might be... I mean if there's younger people pull it up on YouTube right now because that might be one of one of the greatest most exciting first rounds or or three rounds total I think it was like a three round knockout. Uh one of the most exciting fights you'll ever you'll ever watch. But do you recall your feelings when you watched that sucker for the first time. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know it was funny because Marvin Hagler was the blue collar guy. He he brought his lunch pail. Well, we know he had talent and all that stuff, but the neon talent, the talent that shines that that lights up is kind of belonged to Sugar Ray Leonard and, and guys like Tommy Hearns, you know, got your attention. That power, bang, the guy's gone, you know, speed, everything, uh, the footwork, all, all the sensational things. But Hagler was, he was the opposite of that. He was the blue collar guy that just brought his lunch pail every day. And he was what you would want in a best friend. He was dependable. He was reliable. He would never let you down. And he never let himself down. That's a great talent. We forget about those talents sometimes. He didn't let you forget. But we do. We look at all the sensational ones that jump out and they get our attention. And we forget about how important it is to be consistent, to be reliable, to be dependable. And that was Hegler. And I remember the week of, you know, he didn't do all that hyperbole with the press conference stuff. He, he, he didn't go for that stuff. And he didn't need to. And I remember the week of, I see him, I see a picture of him, and he's wearing a hat that says war. And I said to myself, wow, that's different for Marvin. That's a little different. You know, that's out from the, that's a little outside the ordinary for him to even go that far. And then the first round started. And I said, oh, <laughs> well, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't freaking kidding. And um, I I remember the right hand, the first right hand that Hearns caught him coming in. You know, Hag was being aggressive. Hearns catches him with right hand. Bang! Clean right hand. And for a split second, a split millisecond in time, it's like, Almost, I know this sounds, and it is dramatic, but like the world stood still. Like, like Marvin Hagler, the granite shin Marvin Hagler, like there was almost a split second of a, of a shutter, but it was gone. It was gone. He walked right through and then he walked right through and it was Marvin Hagler and he said, no, nothing is going to deter me. Nothing is going to slow me down. And he went right through that and it was back and forth, back and forth and as you said, it was, it was known in boxing as three rounds of hell. <laughs> three rounds of hell. And Marvin Hegler's will, his dependability, his mentality of that blue-collar mentality, that, that just never letting up mentality, that broke down Hearns. That, that got the better of his maybe superior talent. Yeah, i say it. Maybe superior talent but that beat talent will will beat skill when they are comparable oh that's so perfectly said yeah,
0: it is again. If you're, especially if you're younger, or if you're older and, and and you haven't seen it in a while, pull it back up. It is three rounds, well worth watching over and over again. It's it's wild. Well, we've really gone in depth onto three of them, but let's uh, do a little bit of a deeper dive on um, Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, the the movie itself, and you know, we've we've you and I have both mentioned sort of he was like the golden boy, the poster child, sort of a thing. Um, but talk about how there was some, some uh, you know, not only talent and speed, but like some real grit in there. You know, he some of those fights, he was pushed to the limits and he really showed some heart too.
1: Yeah, Sugar Ray Leonard, the difference between maybe Sugar Ray Leonard and a Tommy Hearns, obviously, you know, the, Hearns is much taller, much longer. We understand those physical uh, differences, you know, from the physical uh, makeup, uh, but maybe one of the. Easiest, best ways for me to say it is both of those guys being the competitors, the great fighters that they were, would take you to the fire. They'd go right to the fire with you. Leonard would go into the fire if he had to. He would go into the fire. And he always believed he'd get out. <laughs> but And he usually did. But he would wrap himself around you and say, freak it. I'm going into the fire. That, that's one of the differences that people don't realize with Sugar Ray Leonard because he was the gold boy Because he, had, he was a good-looking guy with that great smile, and he did the 7-Up commercials and everything with his little son. And, and was just so perfect. And he was the gold medalist. And you didn't really connect those things with what you connect with a rugged fighter. But he had every bit of that ruggedness. He had every bit of that bulldog every bit of that ferociousness and a little extra and a little extra people forget. Yeah, he was the gold boy, but he came from nothing. He he came from nothing. He didn't have anything. I remember stories about, I think it was Jacobs, one of his trainers who unfortunately wasn't with him at the end, but I remember hearing stories about how he would bring groceries uh, to his family when he was just a kid. Uh, so they, they they came from difficult background, just like the other ones did. Uh, but again, you you just saw him as the golden boy, and you forgot about that. But he didn't forget about it. He knew how to behave when the moment came, you know, when the bell rang for for that kind of behavior, that kind of, you know, action. He knew what to do, and um, yeah, he was he was every bit he was every bit that bulldog. Uh, when he had to be, uh, and, a, and a terrific finisher. Remember when he hurt Tommy Hearns. You know, he was losing that fight. Yeah, he, was, he was in the fight. It was a good fight. Hearns hurt him, caught him some good shots, and then he hurt – he caught him some good shots, but he had a great chin, Leonard. And then he, he hurt Hearns early, and Hearns started boxing. Do what you, we talked about earlier using those physical assets, the long arms, the legs, moving around and body. And he got a lead. He was, a, he was ahead in that fight. He was winning that fight. And it was up to Leonard to figure it out. And Leonard was pursuing him, but not able to get past that reach. And then he caught him a shot. I forget what round it was. It was late in the fight. And he caught him maybe the 11th round, 12th round, whatever it was. It was a 15-round fight. He catches him and he hurts him. And you see the legs. The legs gave it away. The legs, you know, shimmied a little bit. And let it. you didn't have to tell him what to do. Like all great finishers. Joe Lewis was one of the great finishers. Tyson was a great finisher. Jack Dempsey was a great finisher. Sugar Ray Leonard was a great finisher. He went and he got the job done. And, you know, he closed that gap for being behind. He knew that it was in his control. He knew what he needed to do. And he behaved like a ferocious fighter. Not like a golden boy not like a golden boy he behaved like a fighter when the moment came and he always was that and that's what made him so great that's what made all of them great but that's what made Leonard great with all that talent all that ability the guy was a damn fighter oh yeah absolutely
0: I love the way you describe it man he, you're right he was that pit bull that would would wrap around wrap himself around you and say oh you want to go to the fire I'll go with you to the To the ends of hell and I'll be the last one standing. Yeah, there's an amazing uh, guts to that guy. All right, cool. Well, where the documentary sort of leaves off is you know that these guys, they were that transition, right? Between the, you know, Ali, Frazier, George Foreman, that whole era was widely popular, but that had started to fade. Then you get these four kings, these you know, middleweight kind of guys. But then after that, it becomes the era that you know very well from experience, which is uh, you know, Tyson just takes over there as, as the baddest man in, in the game for a while. Memories of uh helping train Tyson there, because cause you were trained by Cuss yourself, right?
1: Yeah, I was with Costamato. I fought with him. I won the gold gloves when I was young, about 18 years old. And I was 19. I had an injury. And Cust talked me into becoming a trainer. I thought I had an ability to teach and to be a trainer. So um, it took a while to convince me because I was going to be a pro fighter. And finally, he got me to, to train all the fighters up in Catskill. And I was training them, you know, for years. I was with Cust for seven years. And then Mike Tyson came along. One day, uh, he came from Tryon Juvenile to Link uh, Juvenile uh, Correctional Facility. Uh, he was 12 years old. Bobby Stewart, a former fighter, uh, and he was a correction officer there. Brought him to us. Uh, Caught up, said, "Would you and Teddy take a look at this kid that I I've been teaching a few things, but I can't really teach him anymore." And um, i like just to take a look at him. And he brought him down. He was 190 pounds, 12 years old. You know, the first thing you want to do is say, could I see a birth certificate, please? You know, because uh, that's not the most common thing to see somebody 12 years old, all, you know, all muscle and, and 190 pounds um, of defined 190 pounds. Uh, and we uh, we put him into box with Bobby Stewart. And we saw the potential that he had, obviously. It wasn't too hard to see. You know, he, he had God-given ability. You know, he had that genetic ability, great speed, uh, great power. As I said earlier, punches. you know, I'd love to take credit and say, oh, yeah, I taught him to be a puncher. No, punches are born. They're not made. You teach him the delivery system. We taught him how to slip punches and create openings, create holes where you can fill the holes with those big punches, with those fast hands. And he had a great combination of speed and power. And, but he had to be developed. He had to be taught. Um, and we started that journey uh, to teach him uh, right, right from that first day oh yeah absolutely
0: i mean one of the most exciting talk about must-see fights is whenever tyson would fight you had to be there and you had to be in your seat early because if if you missed you know a minute or two you might the fight might be over for so many of those fights um what would you say tyson's legacy is i mean obviously the shocking upset with buster douglas and everything but um man i always thought it was a shame that we didn't get to see him and him and lennox lewis earlier you know when they were both in their prime you know because tyson had you know had gone to prison and come back and all that stuff but um you know so where, where do you where does Tyson sort of rank amongst the the great heavyweights of his era and, and of all time to you?
1: You know, as far as pure ability, he ranks with anybody. As far as being to kind of like a Mickey Mantle, you know, he could hit from either side of the plate. Uh, he could punch left hand, right hand. Great speed, great combination. As I said earlier, kind of like a a big Manny Pacquiao. You know, Manny Pacquiao, great speed, great power, and he carried it. Uh, Tyson, great speed, great power. And he was taught the the proper system, the proper style, the picklebo style, that not only accommodated his abilities, his skills, uh, and his physical, you know, structure, his physical size. He was only 5'10, 5'11. So slipping punches, getting inside. It was the right style for him. But it also was an exciting style. You know, it was a style where uh it got people's attention and put fannies in his seat. Um, it was a sensational style. So he had all of that. And obviously, you know, he captured the imagination of, of the world, you know, winning the heavyweight title younger than Floyd Patterson, Custer's other fighter, becoming the youngest heavyweight champ of all time. Uh, and he still remains, you know, with that record. But where he comes up short, with some of the great fighters for me. Again, it's not the talent. He's there with anyone. Great finisher, like Joe Lewis. Tremendous finisher. Tyson hurt you. He knew how to get rid of you. Um, great instincts. But where he came up short was the mental side, the mental toughness. You know, in his fights, in his toughest fights, he came up short. He came up. There's no getting around it. You could be a Tyson fanatic all you want. Go ahead. I'm not stopping you. But facts are facts. You know, Uh, truth is truth. Uh, when in his toughest fights, he would come, he would come up short. He did come up short. And in the fights, I always have a saying, I always say that a fight is not a fight until there's something to overcome up to that point. It's just an exhibition of how athletic you are, how well-trained you are, how good your technique is. It's, It's an athletic adventure. It's an athletic exhibition. Um, of, of your talents, you know, uh, shadow boxing with another man. Uh, you know, uh, where you're physically superior than the other guy, you're you're gonna come out on top. You're gonna you're gonna have the upper hand. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have the edge on a guy. But then, where everything changes, when, well, when something goes wrong, when there's something to overcome, when there's resistance that's when it becomes a real fight. And that's when the other abilities have to be there, where they show up, and if they or they don't show up. Either way. But that's what separates guys. That's what separated Ali, Joe Frazier, all of them. I mean, all, all the great fighters. That, that's what makes the difference. Joe Lewis, all of them. And for me, without that part, without that Mental toughness of being able to overcome something, being able to come from behind. You know, Tyson never was able to do that. If you really, and this will get people crazy, but if you look at his record, I don't have it in front of me, but let's say it's 50 and 5, somewhere around there. I know it maybe it's 50 and 6, whatever it is. You could make an argument that those five or six fights that he lost. Well, the only time he was in a real fight, otherwise, he dominated the people. Michael Spinks, yeah, great light heavyweight. He beat Larry Holmes, yeah, good puncher. He had the Spinks jinx, but he did not have the ability. Tyson, when when Tyson won those fights, he overwhelmed guys with his great ability. And I'll say it again, he has as good a as anybody in the history of the sport. That's how good it was. And he overwhelmed guys. He was like a monster truck running over Volkswagens. I mean, that was the disparity. That was the the big difference between his talent and other people's talent. He ran them over. And when he did, he was sensational. We applauded it. We were in awe. We were struck by it. But then when the talent wasn't enough, to run him over, when it wasn't a Volkswagen in front of him, when it wasn't just the, the pure difference in ability, where he had to match it with will. We talked about that word earlier, where the will had to be there with the skill. And he ran into guys that had good physical talent, maybe not quite as good as him, but very close, comparable. But they had greater will. He came up short. He came up short. Came up short to Holyfield. He came up short to Douglas. He came up short to others. To Lennox Lewis. Yeah, you can say it was later in his career. But you can't say that about the other fights. So that's something that, for me, if you're going to judge things fairly, and you're going to judge things sternly, and they should be judged properly sternly, when you're talking about in a serious way about judging people as the greatest at what they do in history. You have to judge it in every way with the whole package. And when I look at that, the best way I can say it is this. Tyson was a meteor. He he was a meteor that, that blazed across the sky fast. He was Haley's Comet. They don't come along too often. There's no doubt about it. And they get your attention and they light up the sky. And you say, oh, my God, that is spectacular. And he was, but the other ones, Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali, later on, George Foreman earned the right to be in there. Those guys, you know what they were? They were planets. They were planets. They, they had substance. They had, and what was their earth to the planet? What well, was the character? It was the mental toughness. And, they, and that's what made them and gave them that staying ability. That ability to beat guys, even when there was resistance, even when there was something tremendous to overcome. That's the difference for me.
0: Thank you so much for, uh, you know, breaking that down of where where Tyson ranks. And uh, yeah, I I agree with you entirely. Um, Well, you've been more than generous with your time. So, you know, final question, just sort of, you know, the state of boxing today. I know you host, you know, the (laughs) fight with Teddy Atlas on YouTube and, and it's a podcast too, obviously, uh, so everybody you know check that out you know as soon as you get off of here listening to this go over and check out the fight with teddy atlas um but what's your take on the fight of boxing today i mean you know in in that post tyson era you know from then to today we saw the ufc really take off i mean mma even things you know like you know wwf WWE took off you know lots of other things competing with boxing for for the public's attention but i think it's beautiful it's the sweet science it's what we love there's it's got the history uh like no other but you know could it ever return to its its height of popularity like it like it once was?
1: Not with these separate power brokers, these greedy promoters. And I'm sorry, it might hurt some people's feelings. But again, you, when you tell the truth, sometimes it's not always going to be what everybody wants to wants to hear. Right. But you got these separate power brokers. You don't have a national commission like you do in baseball, football, basketball, the other sports, you know, even golf. I mean, really, you don't you have two separate power brokers you know there's separate promoters that are attached to separate networks and all they care about is their little piece of property well it's not so little it's pretty big you know it's got swimming pools it's got fountains it's got a, i mean they're doing pretty damn well but it's it's not it doesn't represent the whole sport it doesn't represent the brand of boxing it just represents the stable fighters that they control and there's like four of these power brokers right now and what they do is they navigate their guys to undefeated records if they can to make the networks happy, their partner. But it doesn't make the public happy. It doesn't make the sport better because they avoid some of the best fights. And they're not going to make them. Look, for example, you got Spencer Crawford, right? I think any boxing fan would say, yeah, I want to see that fight to see who the best welterweight in the world is. I want to see that. You're not going to see it because they were different networks with different promoters and unless they control the whole enchilada the whole thing they're not gonna they're not gonna let them fight each other unless it becomes like Pacquiao and Mayweather became years ago even though it was five years too late where there was such a demand there was so much money involved that the two different promoters the two different networks they had to get together but that's not the case too often so what I'm saying is you don't get to you don't get the 80s. You don't get the 80s. You want to see the 80s? Watch Four Kings. I'm sorry, because you're not gonna see the best fighting for the most part. You're not seeing the best fight the best because you have these separate power brokers that are protecting their own little piece of property. And that's too bad. And that's the reason why UFC, and I hate to say this, you have to understand, I'm a lifetime boxing guy. This is my whole life, and nothing but boxing. But again, the truth is the truth. UFC has surpassed boxing in numbers. Not when it comes to the iconic fight. Not when it comes to the Super Bowl fight, to the giant fight. If you're going to put Fury in there with Joshua, you know, something like that, or Canelo with 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 a real, real, you know, with a real competitive fight, or then you're going to boxing is going to be the bigger universe, no doubt about it. But as far as day to day, week to week. What's being put out there? UFC is surpassing the numbers of boxing now. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because there's too many A's against B's. You got the A side against the B side. Everyone knows the A side's going to win. In boxing, just building up their promoters, protecting their fighters, just building up the one side to make the network happy. And they're not competitive. Then 80 percent, maybe 85, maybe 90 percent of these fights, they're not competitive. And then you get 10% every once in a while, they throw your bone and they'll put on a good fight. We've had a few good fights and they are put on a good fight. But then if you're watching every day, every week, you're not seeing those competitive fights. But if you watch the UFC, yeah, you are. And people are going to say, Teddy, why? Well, you know why. Because, yeah, you don't have a national commission there either, but you have a dictator. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I say dictator, I don't mean he's out there chopping people's heads off. But he's the one guy, Dana White, he runs the whole thing. So he wants the brand, UFC, the sport, to be healthy. Because if it's healthy, he's healthy. He wants all. he doesn't want one or two guys. He wants the whole sport. So he makes sure that week to week when you turn on UFC, you're seeing a competitive fight. Yeah, you are. You're, you're seeing a usually 95% of the time you're seeing a competitive fight. Not the case with boxing because there's again, because you have all these different power brokers and they want to protect their guy. Not Dana White. I mean, that's, you know, he sits in that, um, he sits in that great seat where he's the guy that's in charge. He can say it's my way or the highway. And he makes these guys fight tough fights in order to make the brand successful that's that's what we have right now
0: yeah but i mean it's it's like anything man it's like whether you're watching a movie with a bunch of storylines or it's boxing with all these different title belts and different you know, WBA, WBC, all these different commissions. And you already have all the different weight classes, by the way, that, you know, to confuse everything. But like if you have all these different promotions, like it's as a viewer trying to find storylines in the whole thing, it's it's harder to latch on to. It becomes diluted when it's all spread out. There's a baseball commissioner. There's a Roger Goodell for NFL. Like, is that ever even a possibility or do you think it's so splintered now that it will never gel like that?
1: They would never cooperate with it. Number one, they go down to be kicking like hell, you know. They'd be like your kid that you take them away from the uh, ice cream bar, you know. They'd be <laughs> <laughs> they'd be kicking and screaming, you know, all the way to their rooms. Um, they're not gonna let it happen. Years ago, I uh, I was dealing with Senator John McCain and a few other people.
0: Rest in and peace.
1: We, what's that?
0: I said, rest in peace.
1: Yeah, rest in peace. God bless him. Uh, good man, special man. Especially right
0: after Memorial Day. And,
1: yeah, really, you're right. And um, the perfect time, actually, to uh, to honor him and to, to pay a little tribute to him. But he, he was trying to get a national commission together. And he had me and a couple other people um, kind of secretly, quietly involved where we were putting together what would make up a national commission. We were putting it together. And he really cared about it. And we were... But the problem was he could never get it passed through both houses. The reason why, because there would always be a Senate. Hey, listen, I'll say the name. I don't care. Harry Reid was one of them. I, I, I think he's retired now. I don't know, but whatever. But I'm, I'm just saying, uh, out in Nevada, there, there was other ones too. And they, they were always, they always got in the way of it being passed. And listen. It's not rocket science. I, I hate to say it, and this is going to shake up some people. But when when you looked at why, why would they not pass it? Well, it's public domain, and he pointed it out to us. They were getting campaign contributions from from two of the most powerful uh, promoters that time, Don King and Bob Aron. Uh They they were and some of the other guys. There was donations coming, and who did not want a national commission? Well, those guys didn't. Because why, why break something, you know, why fix something if it's not broken as according to them? Why, why change something that obviously made them very wealthy and gave them a lot of power? Why, why change it? So we kept coming to this problem. It was very frustrating. I, we were about five of us with, with McCain. And, um, and they were all good people. They really wanted to change the sport, help the sport, help the fighters. And, every, and McCain did. And McCain really did. And every time it came to opposition with these different guys, these different uh, senators, uh, you know, that, that would object to it. And again, when you looked at it, when you, when you asked the question why and you just traced it, you saw they were getting campaign contributions from these guys. You can figure it out, whatever you want. I'm not accusing anyone because I don't know. I don't know because you're allowed to give campaign contributions. There's nothing illegal about that. But what I do know is that there was objection from these people and we never could get it through. And I remember one time I got so frustrated, <laughs> me and God bless him, Jack Newfield was also one of them, the, the great, great, great columnist, uh, Jack Newfield. and. Um, just a just a great man and a fighter of the underdog, always a fighter of the underdog and a great, great boxing fan. And it got to the point where I was so frustrated. I said, what's going on? And the, what the blueprint, the, what we were, the, the draft of what we were trying to put forward was shown to the promoters. They had, Asked to see it, and they objected to it. Some of these promoters, and I was so frustrated. I was saying, you know, to McCain and to his assistant at the time, I was like, "Why? Why are we showing it to them? Well, we they they have to see it. They they, and but who did they show it to? Well, they showed it to the promoters. Well, to me, and I know this is a very, very strong thing I'm about to say, but I was like, "Hey, listen, if, if you were trying to." pass drug legislative to stop the cartels from dealing drugs, uh, you wouldn't show what you're trying to do to Escobar. Uh, you, you you know, <laughs> you wouldn't show it to the guys that you're about to shut their business down. And McCain was very frustrated. Like, but what could he do? The, these were his fellow, you know, these are his fellow senators and uh, members of uh, the Senate and Congress and Obviously, McCain's doing the right thing. He's sharing it with them. He has to. But they're sharing it with people that don't want it, that obviously are against it for obvious reasons, because they, they don't want to be controlled. And so I guess I just gave you the answer. Uh, no, it's never going to change. At least put it that way. I shouldn't say it because I shouldn't have that kind of view, and you never give up. Um but after going through that, it it certainly it certainly dampened my spirit a little bit, a little freaking bit, um, to see what we had to go through trying to help to sport and to see that it didn't at at the end of the day it didn't get anywhere.
0: Right, for sure. Well, I guess uh you know. I guess never say never, but it sounds like, uh, yeah, you're not optimistic on on that ever being a thing, but we hey, listen, can, we can McCain, dream, man.
1: <laughs> God, God bless McCain. He later on, you know, he got, he had bigger fish to fight. He ran for something called the presidency of the United States. And you know, and that was the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But
0: yeah, it's uh, it's a shame that we might, we'll never see some, you know, like a uniform, you know, giant organization like that. Like you're saying, uh, it's, it's a shame, but. No, and, you know, and
1: part of the culprits here, obviously, are these sanctioning organizations. They have so much power, so much money now because they get sanctioning fees. So whether it's the WBC, the WBA, you know, the WBO, the, the IBF, uh, whatever. I mean, they, they all control their little factions of the power of, of boxing, where they sanction these fights, where they rate these fighters. And, you know, there's corruption there. And as long as these, as long as they're in charge, I mean, that's why you have the proliferation of belts. I mean, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. There used to be a time that you could ask somebody, who's the champions? And there was only eight classes eight-way eight classes eight world champions right now forget about it forget about it there was a newspaper writer he's one of the last of the mohegans out there that covered boxing you know because now newspapers really don't have a boxing writer you know you got you got the network you got the web the websites you know uh, on, on the internet and you have different writers some of them are very good. But the the newspapers, they don't really they don't have boxing writers. Anymore. They got football writers, baseball writers, but they don't have boxing writers like they used to. And there's this one writer, he called me up a couple of weeks ago. And, do you and remember his name?
0: Probably, do you know yeah, his
1: name? Yeah, Ron Borges. He's a, he's a terrific writer, one of the old boxing writers, and he writes for the he used to write for the Boston Herald and the Boston Globe. Uh, terrific, terrific man, terrific writer. A friend of mine, and he wrote, you know, he covered New England Patriots, he covered everything, the Red Sox, obviously, and he covered boxing. And he calls me up. I couldn't believe it. And he starts, we start having this conversation about all these belts and about these ridiculous organizations that control what they control in boxing. And just nobody knows who the champions are. And he said, Teddy, I decided last week to actually count up all the belts. All the different frivolous titles that are out there in boxing. And you're not going to believe the number. So, uh, you know, I asked a few people after I found out the number. And a few of them said uh, 20. One guy says 25. One guy said 30. And I'm going to ask you the question. How many you think there are? How many you think there are?
0: uh well uh, now you've teed it up i'm gonna
1: probably guess higher but initially i probably would have said yeah 2025
0: but i'm guessing you're gonna go way higher now (laughs)
1: all right all right when i say this i i don't mean to laugh but i'm not gonna cry either um (laughs) because it makes you want to cry 117 and that's ridiculous. If you're directing a movie, no one can follow
0: 117 plot lines. And if you're running a sport, no one can follow 117 champions. You, at that point, you're not a champion. You're just, you know what I mean? You're, you gotta, if it's, if it's Believe eight me, titles across mean, weight classes, cool. You're, you're the champion of something. But if you got 117, what are you champion of? You're a champion of the corner down the street, you know?
1: <laughs> well, well, 21st Street and Lexington. So, But you can't yeah. go past 23rd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't go past twenty third, but um, yeah, it's, it's a, a shame. It's, it's a tough situation. It's a tough situation. But you know what's a good situation? Really, is uh, you can go back and you can watch this, you can watch this series with the four kings, and you <laughs> you can go back in time, uh, when it was right, and that's that's good. That's a good thing
0: way to bring it full circle my friend <laughs> it's uh again everyone it's called the kings uh on showtime it premieres sunday june 6th at 8 p.m you know all about the four kings uh sugar ray leonard marvelous marvin Hagler, tommy the hitman hearns and roberto duran you know fist of stone or i guess it is is what it was
1: yeah hands um, of stone exactly hands of right. stone
0: yeah man uh, those four are unbelievable and uh you too sir you're you're a you're you're a living piece of boxing history too teddy atlas so you're an atlas you're an you're an encyclopedia of boxing sir
1: so <laughs> no, thank um, you jason now you're a gentleman that comes across very clear so it's my pleasure
0: all right well take it easy and uh you know you know one day you you be you become the dana white of, of boxing and that you know you can take it
1: all over <laughs> i don't i don't want the job but thank you <laughs> <laughs> take it easy